Tonight we're going to continue to work through Hebrews 11, often called the faith chapter. And it's called that for a good reason. The word faith occurs about 25 times in this chapter, usually in a two-word phrase, by faith. So the author of Hebrews 11 is trying to show us what living by faith looks like in real life. We're going to read in just a minute Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. But before we do, let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. It is a light unto our path and a lamp for our feet. With it, we would not know who you are. Not really. We would not know the way of salvation. We would not know the joy of being reconciled to you, of being your children. So we thank you, Lord, that this word leads us to the gospel and then leads us and teaches us how to live out through the gospel. Lord, would you bless these words tonight? We thank you that the power is in the message, not in the preacher. But Lord, this is power. This is your word. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So bless us, Lord, with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is one of those words that, that everybody likes. Everybody agrees that faith is important. Even people that have no particular religious convictions. So consider <clears throat> this quote... It's anonymous, and I think you'll agree it deserves to stay anonymous. Here's a quote about faith. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not think, not wonder, not imagine, not obsess. Just breathe and have faith that everything will work out for the best. Doesn't that sound like our culture? But it's not what the Bible means by faith at all. It's just wishful thinking. It's whistling in the dark. At best, it's faith in faith. But Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the Bible, faith is always faith in God and in God's promise. And it's the courage and perseverance to live accordingly. Biblical faith is always radically God-centered. It looks beyond this world for meaning and joy, and it perseveres through all the trials and tribulations of life. So let's take a look at the man, the man of faith, Abraham, once again. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So here's my main point tonight, <clears throat> just one point. True faith, or we could call it saving faith, or we could call it what Nick called it last week, persevering faith, does three things. First of all, it receives God's promises. 
Secondly, it considers God's power. And third, it then offers up everything back to God. So true faith receives God's promises, considers his power, and offers up everything to him. So let's take a look at that first part. True faith receives God's promises. Now this is foundational in the Bible. It's foundational and essential in this chapter. It's been a theme all the way through our look at Hebrews 11. Our faith is always a response to what God says, especially to what he promises to do. And this idea that our faith responds to God's promises is carried into the New Testament as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, <clears throat> let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we see throughout Old and New Testament, God is gracious. He makes amazing and wonderful promises to us. And these promises enable us to trust him and obey him through every difficulty and trial. And we see that in our first verse tonight, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. I want you to notice four things in this sentence. Number one, Abraham acted in faith. Number two, Abraham acted in faith when he was tested. True faith will always be tested, sometimes extremely severely. Number three, Abraham acted in faith when he was tested by offering up his only son. And as we'll see, this is an unimaginable test. And it was seemingly contradictory to everything Abraham knew about God. And number four, Abraham acted in faith when he was tested by offering up his only son because he had received the promises. So what were the promises that Abraham received that fueled and enabled his walk of faith? Well, if you go back to Genesis 12, you don't need to do that. I'll just tell you. <clears throat> Genesis 12, 1 through 3. First time God appears to Moses, uh, Abraham, he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. That's not a bad start. Then you, if you were to look at Genesis 15, this is about 14 years later. Abraham's in his late 90s. He still doesn't have a son. And he's concerned that he's going to have to leave all his possessions to his servant, Eliezer. God appears to him again. More promises. I will protect you. I will reward you. I will give you a son, your very own son. And I will give you offspring from this son, as numerous as the stars. I will dispossess ten nations in Canaan and give your offspring this land. It's getting better. Then in Genesis 21, that's quoted here in Hebrews 11, God says to, to Abraham, through Isaac, not his other son Ishmael, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. 
So you notice that these promises get increasingly grander, more specific. They're stunning, over the top, seemingly crazy promises made to an old man with a barren wife. But Abraham believed these promises, and so he continued to trust God for a promise that was no longer merely difficult. It wasn't even improbable. It was now impossible. So what did Abraham's faith look like? We have a wonderful picture of it in Romans 4. Paul describes Abraham's faith as he's waiting for a son this way. In Romans 4, 19 through 21. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, listen to these words, that God was able to do what he promised. So true faith, saving faith, persevering faith, grows strong and gives glory to God as we know his promises, as we receive his promises, and as we live according to those promises. So Abraham received the promises. Secondly, true faith considers God's power. Now we saw in Genesis 21, <clears throat> God is very clear that it's Isaac that is his chosen son to continue the covenant and bring the blessing of salvation to the whole world. You remember back in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah facing a crisis, still no son. Sarah says, take Hagar, my maidservant, have a son by him, and that's the way we'll fulfill the promise. And they do that, but it's not what God planned. So God is very clear that it's Isaac through whom the covenant will continue and salvation will come to the whole world. So one chapter later, in, chap in Genesis 22, he tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. What? What must it have been like for Abraham to hear that command after waiting 25 years for Isaac? How could he possibly navigate through this seeming contradiction? On the one hand, God says, I gave you Isaac when it was totally impossible in order to continue my saving plan. And now on the other hand, I want you to give Isaac back to me by offering him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. How could he even get his head around that? How could he navigate through that? Well, verse 19 tells us the amazing answer. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which from, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So twice, God considers, or Abraham considers God able. 
He considers him able to give him a son when it's impossible. And he considers him able even to raise him from the dead if he's offered up to him. There's a lesser known reformer. We usually think of Luther and Calvin. A lesser known reformer named Johannes Ocolampadius. And he imagines Abraham reasoning like this. The one who gave a son to this hundred-year-old body, he is also able to raise the dead. And it is God, the greatest and the best, who has given the command. Therefore, he must be obeyed, not resisted, nor even complained against on the basis of faith in the promise, nor may it be feared that he is at all unfair. That's amazing. Now, at this point, we may be very tempted to get ourselves off the hook. That's really interesting about Abraham. He's the man. But God's not going to require that kind of faith from me. I'm just regular old me. But think about when Jesus was in the Gospels on the earth, interacting with people, what kind of faith he demanded. Remember Jairus, his 11-year-old daughter. He just found out that she died. And Jesus says, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Believe what? She's dead. Or the disciples, when they see the interaction with, between Jesus and the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler walks away sorrowfully, and Jesus says, children, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And the disciples throw up their hands and say, then who can be saved? That's impossible. And Jesus says, yes, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Maybe most connected to us, most relevant, most helpful, most practical, is Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul he wants to let the Corinthians and all of us in on what things were like for him in Asia. This is what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever felt that? So utterly burdened beyond your strength that you've despaired of life? Maybe you feel that way tonight. But listen to what Paul says. This is faith. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There it is again. Faith that believes God is able to raise the dead. So what Paul seems to be saying is no matter what you're facing, God is able. Third point. True faith on the basis of receiving the promises, on the basis of carefully considering the power of God, offers back to God everything. 
As we said, the ultimate test of faith for Abraham was to give Isaac back to God by offering him as a burnt offering. Now, you know what a burnt offering is, right? You take the sacrifice, you kill it, you drain the blood, and you burn it till there's nothing left. It's total offering. And what more excruciating, demanding test could be imagined? This was the beloved son born to his beloved Sarah. This was the miracle son born to a barren woman and a hundred-year-old man. And twice the writer of Hebrews stresses this point. He says, by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. He was in the act of offering up his only son. The Greek word is monogene, mono, one, gene, offspring or son. I, I imagine that word sounds familiar to you. It's the very same word used in John 1.14 with a different, uh, a different form, monogenus. When, when Jesus is referred to as the only son of the Father. We're being invited, brothers and sisters, to notice two really important things. First of all, we're being invited to notice the pathos of what Abraham was called to do. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I say this reverently. God's being specific, but it almost seems like he's rubbing it in. That one, not Ishmael. Notice the pathos. It's heartbreaking. But notice, too, the connection between Isaac and Jesus. Both were sons, beloved sons, and both carried wood on their back up the very same mountain in order to be sacrificed by the will of their father. Many scholars believe that Mount Moriah and Golgotha, if not the very same hill, were very close. How, how do you act in faith in a situation like that? Again, the secret source of Abraham's courage and radical obedience is that he considered that God was able even to raise the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Commentator Raymond Brown notes that Abraham placed no limits on God's command or power, and he placed no limits on his own trust or obedience. So, brothers and sisters, faith places no limits on God's power or our response. And because he did not limit God or himself, he received Isaac back figuratively from the dead. But this figurative resurrection of Isaac points us like a laser to the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ Jesus, like Abraham, like Isaac, also did not limit God's command or power, and he did not limit his own trust and obedience. And he was raised and glorified. 
and wonder of wonders. By faith, we are united to this Jesus Christ. We too actually participate in his death and resurrection. And Abraham and Isaac are pointing us to Christ and his death and resurrection. And it's, he's pointing beyond Christ to each one of us who participate in that death and resurrection by faith. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have this amazing, mysterious, biblical paradox. By faith in Christ, we're united with him and therefore we're freed to live by faith in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 1:17 that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or for faith. Faith in Jesus frees us to live by faith in Jesus. We die with him. We rise with him. We live forever with him. And all this is foreshadowed in the story of Abraham offering up Isaac because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Number three, I'm sorry, application. We've already done number three. Three applications based on each of our three points. First of all, like Abraham, joyfully receive all God's promises. Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. How many promises in the Bible, brothers and sisters? Hundreds. They're all yes in Christ. All of God's promises are received as we receive Christ. We never separate the promises or the blessings from Christ. We receive Christ and in Him we receive all the promises of God. Now we don't have time to go through all the promises of God, but let me give you just seven selected ones. Maybe the greatest hits or something. Seven selected promises. When you receive Christ, you receive forgiveness of sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You receive freedom from the power of sin, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You receive wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You receive mercy and grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. You receive power in weakness. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You receive his protection and deliverance. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And finally, we receive the promise of living with Jesus forever. That's best of all. And if I go, I, prepare, I will prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So joyfully receive all the promises of God in Christ. Second, like Abraham, carefully consider, meditate on his power. Where do you feel overwhelmed and hopeless? What is going on in your life that might make you want to just stay in bed tomorrow? Do you remember Paul's desperate words? For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Can you relate? You may feel like you simply won't make it through this illness or this breakup or this unyielding sin pattern or this mental anguish or this heartbreaking issue with your child or this disappointment. But remember, brothers and sisters, what Paul said after his brutally honest description of his own situation and I want, to hear, I want you to hear Paul speaking directly to you tonight. He says, brother or sister, this hardship you're facing is to make you not rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. And hear Abraham speak directly to you tonight. My brother or my sister, God is able to to raise you up from the ashes of your broken dream, your broken relationship, even your broken life. God is able. And finally, like Abraham, in view of all the promises and carefully considering his power, give him back everything. Give him your life and all that's in it. It's the only reasonable and acceptable and spiritual way that you can worship this Father who has already given you everything. He's given you mercy and endless life by offering up his Son for you through his death and resurrection. Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the promises of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And remember, as you offer Him everything, you're not earning anything, you're not meriting everything, but it does open you up to know and full, more fully receive 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, you're not earning anything. You're just clearing away the clutter so that the unsearchable riches of Christ can come, come in like a flood. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, it would be fitting for us just to sit in silence. You make staggering promises to us that are even better because they've become fulfilled than what you originally spoke to Abraham. And we have seen your power, not in a figurative way, but in a literal historical way. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that resurrection power is what sustains us day by day, sometimes through very difficult situations. And those promises are what give us hope for a glorious future, the happiest of all happily ever afters. And so, Lord, we desire, even though we, we tremble and we give something to you and then we want to take it back, but, Lord, we want to offer you our lives. Because when we do that, it just makes more room to receive more of you. So I pray that you would apply this message to each person here or listening by live stream in a way that is perfectly suited to them, perfectly appropriate to their situation. And I pray that this week, Lord, we would lift up our heads and know that our salvation is near. It's nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.